Father in heaven, as we meet together today, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us. Thank you for deacons and deaconesses, the role that they play in their churches. And it's not just a play role, but a serious role of leadership. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us instruction today. I pray that you'll speak through me and that my words will be yours and that you'll also give ears to hear for those who are listening to what we do today. Thank you for being with us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning uh, I want to introduce you to what uh, we're going to be working with in terms of tools. And you have uh, some documentation in front of you that will be of help to you. Uh, I'm not going to make a lot of reference to uh, this particular book, except to let you know right now, this is a deacon and deaconess's handbook that is produced by the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. It is a valuable tool um, and has only been out since last year. They used to have one before, and then you know they kind of run out of them, and then it's time to update it, and then it takes them years to get that done. And finally, last year, they came out with this handbook, and so we're trying to make it available to people. Uh, I am give it out to people that come to a class like this because I feel that you need to have the information, and it's my reward to you for taking the time to come and being part of this class. So you don't have to go buy it because I'm giving it to you, all right? The second uh, thing that you have is your textbook, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time. And I'll explain a little bit more about this textbook here in just a few moments um, as we get into it, but this will be where we're going to spend most of our time uh, together with what I do in the screen, on the screen and the things that I add to our conversation uh, along the way. So this is our main source today. Uh, along, of course, with the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy that are undergirding everything that we'll be doing. Then the last thing that you have is the workbook. And the workbook looks like this, and I will not spend any time in the workbook at all. The workbook goes along with this book, and it's just a nice tool for you. If you're going home, you know, and you don't want to, boy, you say, huh, I need something to keep me awake while I'm reading this book or, or whatever. And the workbook kind of helps you uh, focus in on some areas that are of value and, uh, or specifically the author who made the workbook. You can tell where things were important to him. And he put them in the workbook, and you can kind of work through that. It's uh, you use on your own tool, and that's its purpose. So I'm, that's for that. So those are your materials today. I also have a um, have a pen if anybody needs a pen, and I have notebook paper, blank notebook paper, line paper if you want to take notes. Um, but if you're like me, I get a book like this, and there's something there. I'm going to write right in it because I don't want to lose the notes somewhere along the line. So whatever works for you is great, and those are our resources today. I'm assuming you know who I am. I'm the ministerial director here in Michigan, and the ministerial department is responsible for training and supporting elders and deacons and deaconesses, not just pastors. So it has to fall under some category, and that's a major leadership role somewhere. It's not Sabbath school, and it's not Pathfinders. It's not in that area, and so it falls under our area. And I tell you that so that you know where to go in terms of getting resources to help you in whatever ministry angle you might be responsible for. And we are happy to come out and do training in the local churches. 
One of the reasons I do this is not because I'm getting a big crowd here. Uh, I'm doing it because I know that there's some people that can connect here. There's so many seminars going on that people are having a hard time choosing which one to go to. And, and then the truth of the matter is, yes, on Sabbath there's 5,000 people here during the week. There's 12 or 1,500 people. But there's 26,000 members in the Michigan Conference, and there's only a fraction of the leaders that actually get here. And at some point, I hope you're inspired enough to go back and say, um, we need to have training for all our deacons and deaconesses or all our elders or whatever, and go back to your local church and set something like that up. And all you have to do is ask me and coordinate with your pastor. And that's how that works, and, and I'm happy to do that. And by the way, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, I've gone from camp meeting last year and went to two or three different churches and places where they invited me to come and do some training for them. So I look forward to doing that because it's in the real world and the situation uh, that people are dealing with in a local church, and I'm happy to do that. I believe that the work of deacons and deaconesses and elders, and I'm using all three of those because those positions interact with each other or should interact with, their, with each other just as they did biblically, they should be doing in our local church. And if these positions are functioning as they should, our churches will be stronger, much, much stronger. Our churches have become, frankly, weak today. And one of the reasons is because these positions have not been functioning at full strength like they should be. And you'll understand what I mean as I go through this a little bit and explain uh, a, a bit about uh, what the purposes of elders, deacons, and deaconesses. And I won't be spending any time with uh, elders today because we've been doing that for the last couple of days. How many of you are deacons or deaconesses in your church? Okay, so I know I have one elder here today and the rest of you are deacons or deaconesses in your church. And that's terrific, really glad that you're here. How many of you are new to this position and it's brand new to you, you've never done it before? Okay, that's great. You'll notice that in the notes that uh, I put out about the class, advertising class, is especially designed for people that are new to this position. Now, new can be interesting. New, I've never done this before. Or yes, I've done this before, but I still don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm hoping to find out. That's why I'm here, and that's what we're going to be searching for. That's one of the reasons that I really want to encourage churches to get the elders, the deacons, and the deaconesses into a training program because it will strengthen the church, and you'll understand what I'm talking about today. So we're going to get right into our material now and take a look at this. Let me explain that the textbook that you have before you was uh, produced uh, and written and, and produced by uh, Dr. Vincent White. Um, he's uh, an Adventist minister. I think he's retired now, but he's a Seventh-day Adventist minister who also got so involved in, in uh, this whole process of training deacons and deaconesses and, and researching the whole process that when he worked on his doctoral degree, he uh, used this as a format and a basis for, for his doctoral degree. I will tell you that that's one of the reasons that the book is kind of uh, laid out the way it is. Now, that doesn't mean it's so deep and difficult to read that it's a doctoral dissertation. But I am telling you that because the book 
has references that are very broad. It's not just written in a total Seventh-day Adventist vacuum. By that, I mean that he has drawn from other sources, and he will have some sources in here that are from uh, non-Adventist sources, historical sources, and, and others. And why he's done that is to try to help us do, draw an understanding of what has happened in the deacon, deaconess's positions in the Christian church over the last 2,000 years. And you can't do that from only Adventist sources, and you can't do that from only biblical sources, because the biblical sources end at 100 AD, more or less, and the Adventist sources don't begin until about 1850. So, you know, you, you've got to have fill in the vacuum there somewhere, and he does that just to have a complete picture of how the whole experience and position of a deacon and a deaconess in the church has developed over time and how it comes to be what it is today. And what it comes to be today is both good and bad. We'll explain more about that along the way. So, he's entitled this, The 21st Century Deacon and Deaconess, Reflecting the Biblical Model, and that's really where we want to begin today. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd encourage you to take your Bible out and turn to Isaiah chapter 61, because we want to get a little bit of perspective here in terms of the biblical lay, or I should say uh, background, to what we are talking about here with deacons and deaconesses and the responsibilities that they have. So I'm looking at Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. I would be grateful to have a volunteer read that for me. Okay, please. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken hearts to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So who is being spoken of here? Isaiah is the writer, but to whom is he referring? Okay. Actually, more specific than that. When it says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now, I want you to think about this in the context of the New Testament. And do you remember once when Jesus was in the, ta in the, um, in the synagogue and he was talking uh, to the people there and they asked him to stand up and to read the scripture reading. And the scripture reading that he chose was this passage. And then after he got done reading it, he made a statement that almost got him stoned. Do you remember what that was? He said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So to whom is this referring? It's referring to the Messiah. It's referring to Jesus. And the point that we're making with this and uh, we're trying to identify, and this, by the way, is the first chapter in your book. So if you want to open your book, you'll notice that this is the scripture that Dr. White quotes here in, uh, in beginning his book and setting the stage for the biblical model uh, and showing that Jesus is the model of servant ministry. 
He's helping us to understand that servant ministry is modeled, first of all, by the Messiah, by Jesus Christ. And that becomes important as we deep, uh, dig in just a little deeper here in the next few, few moments because we'll begin to see how that connects with the role of deacons and deaconesses. Uh, same book, Isaiah chapter 53, go back to chapter 53 and look at verse 11, Isaiah 53, verse 11. If someone else would read verse 11, I'd appreciate that. Don't all do it once. A volunteer, raise your hand, somebody. Okay, Ellen, read it, please. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says, He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now this passage is in the famous Isaiah 53 passage, which sometimes is called um, the servant passage. It is the one that has most widely recognized as referring to the Messiah, but not so much by the Jews. They did not see this as pointing forward to the coming Messiah, but this is the suffering servant passage because this is the one that really spoke to Jesus, the Messiah coming, and how that he would suffer for the sins of his people. If the Jews had been understanding this passage as they should have, they would have recognized that the whole sanctuary is summarized in this passage and the whole purpose of the sanctuary that uh, they had part participated in from the day they were born to the day they died, if they grew up in a Jewish home, this is what it was all about. But instead, by the time that Jesus came, they had forgotten this passage, they had misunderstood the sanctuary, and they had come up with the idea that the Messiah was going to come, and his work was to set them free from Roman power. And that was the ultimate situation they had here. So this passage was setting the stage for the Messiah. And we know that Jesus not only understood this passage, but more importantly, he lived as a servant among the people of the world that he might be able to save them. Well, what, that, what does that have to do with what we are talking about here today? Ellen White says this in the quotation that's on the screen and also in your book from Ministry of Healing, pages 19 and 20. And I believe it's also on the first page there. It says this, During his ministry, Jesus devoted more time to healing the sick than to preaching. His miracles testified to the truth of his words that he came not to destroy but to save. The Savior made each work of healing an occasion for implanting divine principles in the mind and soul. This was the purpose of His work. He imparted earthly blessings that He might incline the hearts of men to receive the gospel of His grace. The point is that Jesus spent His time concentrating on meeting the needs of people. He came not as a king, he came not as a preacher, though he preached, but he came especially as a servant to minister to the needs of people. 
when people came to him, Pharisees, lawyers, others, kings even, came to him trying to convince him to perform miracles so that they could say, are you really the Messiah or not? Jesus did not perform miracles for them because he was a servant not coming to display power. He used his power for the purpose of ministering to the needs of people. One of our pastors, we have a staff meeting every morning. One of our pastors this morning did a devotional talking about the power of God and how Ellen White reminds us that the power that God has, God doesn't use all the power that he has. If he used all the power that he had, um, things could be a lot different around. I mean, he can annihilate people, he can do whatever, he can create people, and all of that. God uses his power very carefully on behalf of people. And Jesus is a clear demonstration of that. He didn't use the power for himself. He could have. He could have used the power to, to wipe out the Roman soldiers. He could have uh, taken care of the Pharisees. He could have done all those kinds of things. But no, he used his power simply to minister to people and to improve their lives and uh, help them to understand that he came as a loving Savior that he was going to be sacrificing his life for them. He came to demonstrate God's character and how God uses His power. Now that's important because as we go on with this, we begin to learn something about how the disciples had a bit of a challenge. The disciples, you know, along the way, they, um, they began to realize the potential of God's, of Jesus' power. Uh, you know, when, the, when Jesus is on the uh, side of a mountain, and I don't mean like Everest, I mean a rolling hill overlooking Lake uh, Galilee and, and all of that. And he's preaching to the people, and there's 5,000 men there, plus women and children, and they need to eat. And he tells them to bring the little food that they have, and he blesses it, and it goes all everywhere. I mean, people began to think, okay, Messiah, yes, Messiah is going to be able to overthrow the Romans. We get this. He can feed the Romans and, you know, all, I mean, feed the Romans, feed us soldiers and, and he can heal, uh, heal us when we're wounded and, and he can raise us from the dead if the Roman soldier kills us. And I mean, you know, they started getting all of that. And the disciples kind of got, I'm talking about the people that were listening to him, and even the disciples got a little bit into that. And they began to, to uh, come to the point where when he sent them out and they found that people wouldn't respond positively to them as they uh, did in, in, uh, in the book of Luke chapter 9, they were sent out. Uh, in chapter 10, they were sent out and, and they found that people didn't always respond to them so favorably. They went to the Samaritans and Samaritans hated the Jews. And in that setting... The disciples thought, you know, if, if they won't respond to us, why don't we just bring fire down from heaven and destroy them? That'll settle that problem, right? Well, I'm sure glad that the deacons and deaconesses in our churches don't have that kind of power because they might be tempted to use it occasionally when they can't get support and help and, and, and all of that. And Jesus, we are told... Um, 
was very careful how he used his power for that reason. But with the disciples, we are told that he responded to them and he said, you don't know what spirit you of, and he rebuked them for their, for their response. The author of our book says, uh, Dr. White makes this statement, he says, Jesus taught his disciples that being a servant is more important than power of demons. Jesus wanted them to recognize the self-destructive danger that comes with the love of power. Why are we taking the time to talk about this? And that is because we understand the work of a deacon or a deaconess to be set in the perspective of servant leadership and servant uh, uh, responding to the needs of people. Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 493, and, and it's in your book somewhere, I can't remember exactly what I think it's the next page. Uh, Rejoice not in the possession of power, lest you lose sight of your dependence upon God, but careful, careful lest self-sufficiency come in, I'm sorry, be careful lest self-sufficiency come in and you work in your own strength rather than in the spirit and strength of your master. Self is ever ready to take the credit if any measure of success attends the work. As a pastor, um, I've had a chance to work with a lot of different people, a lot of different uh, characteristics, personalities. And uh, it's interesting to watch a deacon who's been a deacon for 40 years. Uh, there's a certain sense of entitlement, a certain sense of power, a certain sense of don't cross me, a certain sense of uh, whatever. Someone's been in that position for so long. Self begins to rise up because a position of a deacon, especially a head deacon, is recognized as a leader in the church, and that should be. It's exactly what it should be. We want people to be um, recognized as leaders because they carry responsibility, they carry authority, not because authority is to push down on people, but because that's how organization functions. People need to know who to go to when a problem needs to be solved, and that's the kind of authority Jesus is demonstrating for us. But the point of this is that if we come at our positions from a perspective of power, we're going to find that we're not really accomplishing what Jesus intended for us to accomplish. The concept, the author again speaking, that Jesus was trying to instill in his disciples was that ministry is not about power, control, and greatness as viewed by worldly standards, but it is about service to God and humanity. Now this becomes clearer as we begin to think about uh, the word itself that relates to a deacon, and that is, I'm not trying to give you a deep Greek lesson, but the word deacon is from the Greek, diakonos, and it, the, the root for all of this comes from the meaning one who renders service to another, an attendant, a servant. So, obviously, what we're trying to say is that's the foundation of being a deacon or a deaconess, is how can we serve other people? One of the ways that I illustrate this, and people who sit in my classes too much 
hear me say this too much, <laughs> but I repeat it for those who haven't sat in my classes. And if you're an elder, you often think that your responsibility is limited to what you do on Sabbath morning on the platform. If you're a deacon or a deaconess, you think that your responsibility, your job description is defined as ushering people in some churches, um, taking up the offering in all churches, and uh, perhaps uh, coordinating communion service uh, once a quarter and taking care of the various aspects of that. The deaconesses take care of the uh, preparing the bread and the, and the grape juice, the wine, and getting the table ready. And the deacons, deaconess, uh, deacons and elders, they pass the, the emblems out. And our duties are done, job description end, right? Where did the servant part of this come in? Well, I'm serving the people. I'm taking up the offering. How are you serving the people when you're taking up the offering? You're making it so they don't have to get out of their pew and uh, come up and drop it somewhere? Is that what servanthood is taking place? So you begin to sense that the whole job description that we're talking about and this whole book is describing that job description. We're going to look at part of that today. Is set in the, in the foundation of servanthood. Taking a couple more statements here, and then I'm going to go to a biblical example of where deacons and deaconesses were established in a biblical model. Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 550, among his disciples, Christ was in every sense a caretaker, a burden bearer. He shared their poverty. He practiced self-denial on their account. He went before them to smooth the more difficult places, and soon he would consummate his work on earth by laying down his life. The principle on which Christ acted is to actuate the members of the church, which is his body. Jesus came here and practiced self-denial. He practiced servanthood because he wanted to meet the needs of the body of the church, and by doing so also for us to activate others, actuate or activate. The author again says, therefore it is evident that Jesus' ministry, and this is on page six, I even put that on the, on the screen there so you know where it is, of your book, therefore it is evident that Jesus' ministry as a servant provides the theological foundation for the ministry of deacon and deaconess. As deacons and deaconesses follow Jesus' example, they are to enlist the members of the church into a life of service. The foundation for all of this is that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He is our model, and because Jesus is our model, we have, as Christians and as leaders in a Christian church, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we are surrendered to Jesus. And because Jesus is our model, because he demonstrated what it means to be a servant, we want to be servants of his, disciples of his. And if we are called to a position of leadership, as in deacon or deaconess, we're called to that particular task, then especially we're called to model that for the church members so that they are also inspired to be involved in that model. We, at times, are called upon to train them. We'll talk more about that. This whole model of what Jesus was is to be emulated by us and thereby to lead our churches. That's why our churches are weak today. 
because most of our deacons and deaconesses don't even know that's their job. And so I'm not blaming anybody. If you don't know what your job is, how do you do it? That's why you came here. See, you're doing the right thing. That's good. You are doing that for a, a purpose and you are accomplishing what God wants you to because you're taking the steps necessary. But there are 26,000 members. I'd say there's probably about 700, 800, maybe 1,000 deacons and deaconesses. Are they in here? No. Are they being trained? Probably not. Why? Because they haven't thought about it. They are used to taking up the offering and preparing for communion service, and they think they're doing their job. So now you are being inspired to go back and help them and spread the word and get all the rest of them trained. All right, that was a little plug along the way, okay? Let's go to a biblical model and let's uh, see how this all came together. I think most of you are familiar with when uh, the first deacons were established in the New Testament, but it doesn't hurt for us to be reminded in this context because now your mind is thinking deacon, your mind is thinking deaconess, your mind is now thinking servant model, you're thinking of that. All right, so what does the Bible have to say about this? So take your Bibles and look at Acts chapter 6. It is recorded there if you didn't have your Bible. It's always good to check your Bible out against what's printed anywhere, but it is in your book in the chapter entitled The Role of Deacon and Deacons in the First Century. So looking at Acts chapter 6 and looking at 1, let's read uh, verse 1. Let's read through that and get a little bit of a perspective of how this all came to be. So Luke, the author of Acts, he starts off by saying that now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. All right, let's take this apart a little bit, make sure we've got a good understanding. It says, in those days, so when were these days approximately? In the first century, early Christian church days, this is Acts chapter 6, so we haven't even met Saul yet. Saul is not yet even in the picture, no Saul, no Paul. So that comes in chapter 7 and chapter 8. So now this is the time after the death of Jesus, and uh, chapter 2 is Pentecost, and we're in chapter 6 before we meet Saul. So there's a little bit of a time perspective, but the church has been growing. Remember Acts chapter 2, the end of the chapter? You know, 3,000 were added to the church in a day. Is the church multiplying? Yeah, they grew from 150 to 3,000. Well, actually, it was more than that. It was probably in the area of about 500 or so. And they grew to 3,000, literally, in one day. And it was remarkable growth under the uh, influence and inspiration of the Spirit of God. And the church continues to multiply. We are told that they were being added daily according to Acts chapter 2. So after the 3,000 they're adding daily, the church is multiplying, it's growing quickly, and something happens. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the, the church is multiplying, and what is the problem? Is there a problem? What's the problem? Okay, there's a complaint because, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because the widows were being not taken care of. And that is a 
against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. In other words, the Hellenists or the Greeks, because you had the Greeks and the Hebrews, and the Greeks were complaining because they felt that their widows were not being taken care of. All right, verse, verse 2. Someone read verse 2 for me, please. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve Jesus. So who are the twelve? The twelve disciples. Now remember, this is the twelve minus Judas plus Matthias. Is that who it was? I believe it was. And so now these 12 are together, and they're providing the leadership for this rapidly growing church, and they get the church together. It says the uh, multitude of the disciples, and they said, it's not good for us to be doing this. We need to have a plan. All right, someone read verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek also among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and Word, whom we may appoint over this So now they get together and they propose a plan. They say, why don't we choose some individuals? And they give some characteristics for those individuals. And uh, there are seven of them. They are good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit that they are looking for, and that they have wisdom, and they're going to appoint them to take care of this business. What's this business? Delivering food, caring for the needs of the widows among the Greeks and the Hebrews. And then in verse 4, what does it say? Someone else read that. So we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. All right. Focusing in on the specific role that the elders, the apostles, the leaders, the spiritual leaders have. Now, you know, some people say, well... Well, they didn't want to have to work anymore. They didn't want to have to get out there and do all of that. They just wanted to sit in their ivory terror and, and uh, pray and study the Bible. Is that what was going on with these 12? What were they really doing? They were out preaching the Word, weren't they? They were advancing the work. They were out risking their lives in many cases. They were, they were ministering to a cripple at the, at the temple gate and then finding that they get thrown in jail. One of them already has lost their life. Who was that? Uh, not Stephen yet. That's next. It was actually James. No worries. But that's the kind of struggle that was going on here. They were risking their lives with this. So they're out doing the work. They weren't just knocking on doors and having somebody throw tomatoes at them, right? This was real work. They said, we want to be able to be continually in prayer and the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word for them was preaching the gospel and advancing the, the, uh, the work of uh, Jesus and the church. In verse 5, it says, The saying pleased the multitude, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, and Parmenas, and, and uh, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Don't you love all those names? And he took, they took these seven, they set them aside, and verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. They ordained them to that particular position.
ordination simply being an act of separation and of commitment of those individuals to the task, recognizing that they fulfill the qualities that they had established here as what were needed for these leaders and for the work that they were going to do. Oh, now they were just going to feed the widows. Why'd they have to be ordained to feed the widows? You have to be ordained to feed somebody? Well, that's part of the rest of the story, I think, so let's keep going with this. So this is the background, this is the picture that established this. There's not a lot more about this uh, in terms of how this, uh, how it developed over a period of time. They first established deacons in the church to meet a particular need, and then on they went. Let's take a look at a couple of things. First of all, this came about because there was a division between the Jews, the Grecian Jews, and the Palestinian Jews. There were two problems that were developed uh, there. One is they were divided by language. Some of them spoke Greek, some of them spoke Hebrew. Now, most of them had the ability to cross language there, but not everybody did. And there was another issue besides language, and that was culture. And sometimes language is one barrier, but we have a way of trying to find ways around that barrier. But culture seems to be a real challenge for us and really gets to be difficult for us in terms of what we're doing. Yeah, it's okay. Hopefully it's back. All right, good. Thank you. I am supposed to do something so it doesn't do that. It's still recording, but we're good. So united by the Holy Spirit were the was the church at this time. This is the time just after the, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is moving rapidly and the gospel is going out to all the world, literally, moving forward from, from uh, where Jesus told them to wait until the Spirit of God came and now it's moving out to the world. The church is growing rapidly. There's harmony. There's love. They're one accord. They had all things in common and the devil doesn't like it. This is not the devil's picture of the Christian church. This is God's picture of the Christian church. And as soon as the devil sees that happening, he says, now I've got to do something. All right. You ever had that happen in your church? Just about the time you thought things were going well, you wake up one morning and you find out that somebody's mad at somebody in the church or there's some problem in the church, or, you know, we were about to just remodel the sanctuary, but now there's a war about whether it should be green carpet or red carpet, okay? And it might be that it shouldn't be either. <laughs> so there are all these kinds of things that are going on, the devil brings in, and this was a real problem. Remember in those days, the needs of people like this were not supplied by the government. If you didn't have enough to eat, you didn't go down to the local tax uh, collector and say, hey, listen, I've been paying taxes, feed me. You know, <laughs> there was no system for that. There was nothing beyond the tax collector. They took the taxes and they gave it to the government. And the Romans, hey, to their credit, they built good roads. Now, you and I wouldn't want to drive on them, let alone walk on them, but the truth is they were good roads compared with other, what other governments did, and they did have Roman soldiers to keep down uh, uprisings and that kind of thing, so the government was providing something, but that was it. That was all that was out there. And if you were a widow, you had no 
source of income. You had to go out there and fend for yourself. If you happen to have had a wealthy husband before he died and he had a, a servants and, uh, and, and a place where they, uh, a field where they could grow food and all of that, you might be okay. But if you were like most, you were sub you're living on a, subs a subsistence type of, uh, experience where, y you know, you had what you had that day and tomorrow you might not have anything. And the widows, especially women, were not treated very well in those days. And there was a real challenge for a widow to be able literally to survive. If you had no children to take care of you, and you, unless somebody was caring for you, that's where the church came in. Christian church did what God established in the Old Testament. He said that the church was to take care of the poor and the widows and, and, and meet the needs of those people. And the church here was stepping up to that, that, uh, that place. But they had a real problem. And that is the church is growing so fast that it was falling upon uh, Peter, James, and John. James now is the one who got, you know, had his head cut off. Remember when Peter went in the, into prison, they were afraid that he was going to lose his head as well. That's why they were praying all night and, uh, and, and why the miracle of him getting out of prison was so marvelous because they'd already seen James killed. And so instead of 11, they're down to and 12, they're down to 11. Although it does mention 12, doesn't it? Well, what did they do about that? Okay, I've got to think about that for a minute. So at any rate, so the... This is the environment in which the deacons are being established. The unity is short-lived because feelings of distrust, jealousy, and suspicion begin to set in. We human beings, um, we do well as the Spirit of God is moving and we are flooded with the uh, with the love of God, harmony reigns within us. We're led into one accord and we have all things in, in common until some challenge comes to us. And then all of a sudden that unity is short-lived and our old feelings begin to rise up. Our culture, wait a minute, maybe I can't really, you know, I, maybe I really can't trust the Jews to take care of us. Look, they're, they're neglecting our, our, our uh, Grecian uh, widows are not being treated right. And, and yeah, it's probably because they, they're going back to their old Jews hate Greeks mentality. And, and then pretty soon you get fault finding and murmuring. Uh, we don't have those problems in our church today. We don't have any culture differences. We don't have any racial problems. We don't have any of those kinds of things, or do we? So the allegations that this was this neglect was taking place, Ellen White calls it a neglect of the daily distribution of assistance. And the author says, therefore, we trace the roots of the office of deacons. We discover that the reason that they came into existence was to serve and to share the responsibilities of the work. They came into existence because of a problem. Now, the beauty of this little study that we're doing is it really does help us to get this all into perspective. And that perspective is, what does the Bible say about these individuals? First of all, their relationship to the 
other leaders in the church. That's a key element. But then the next thing that we begin to see is not only what they did to solve this problem, but what they continued to do as leaders in the church. And that's a perspective that we want to have. So we want to keep going here so that I can uh, establish this foundation. Ellen White describes the problem. She says the enemy succeeded in arousing the suspicions of some who had formerly been in the habit of looking with jealousy on their brethren in the faith and of finding fault with their spiritual leaders. Satan brings about a spiritual attack on God's church. The church needed men of spiritual stature to look at the need and bring about a resolution. The spiritual qualities that uh, the author here says, the spiritual qualities required of the deacons of the first century Christian church strongly imply that their calling was a spiritual calling. And I want to establish this foundation as we move into the duties, the tasks, the responsibilities of deacons and deaconesses here as we move ahead. It's a spiritual calling. You and I are called to a particular work. And that's why I made the comment earlier in our presentation today, and that is that you may think your work is taking up the offering in the Sabbath morning, deacons, but you don't need to be ordained to take up the offering. There is a reason why the offering is placed in the hands of deacons and so on, and there's a very practical aspect of it, but it's not ordination that establishes that. You are ordained to your positions because of the fact that you are being set aside for the purpose of a spiritual work. What does that and how does that relate to women and deaconesses in the church? And that's kind of the rest of the story, or part of the rest of the story here. I want to talk a little bit about uh, female deacons of uh, the first century. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this area because I only have two days, and I want to concentrate on more of the details and the areas of that uh, involve ministry so that you get those perspectives in mind. But the author here does spend some time talking about it and encourage you to read this chapter and get a little bit of a, an understanding here because the Bible really is not very clear. I'm not saying it's not there. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't come out and say, and then there were deaconesses and they were set aside for the work and they did this this way and so on and so forth. It's really a lot uh, more subtle than that. The word for deacon and deaconess are very similar to each other, and you, as you study this in this in this chapter, he lays it out for us. You begin to see that that uh, it was almost a a you know, we don't believe in evolution, but there is such a thing as evolution. You understand that things do evolve. Now, I don't mean people from monkeys, and I don't mean that, but our structures, our uh, that control our church and the way we function in our church do tend to evolve as needs develop. And that's what began to happen in the Christian church. So I'm going to summarize it rather than putting a lot of stuff on the screen and all. I'm going to give you a brief summary of this. And that is that it appears to be, in some cases, that deacons were married to deaconesses. Actually, a deacon was married to a woman, a woman who also served alongside her husband, 
And essentially, that becomes some of the evolution of deaconesses becoming a reality in the Christian church. And one of the reasons for it, the simplest illustration I know of in regard to this is, did they have hospitals in Jesus' day? Did Jesus ever go to the hospital and visit the sick at the hospital? The closest I know of, of him coming to a hospital was when he came to the pool of Bethesda and there was a man there and there were all these sick people and they were all trying to get into the pool at the same time when the water was supposedly troubled so that they might be healed. There were no hospitals. There was no structure that established the, uh, meeting the needs of people who were sick except that the family now, Luke was a doctor, and a doctor in those days was a lot different than a doctor today. And the, but he apparently had some medical skills, perhaps some training that went along with it. I'm sure he did have some training, and, uh, and, and was recognized as a doctor. And those doctors might be called by, on by people if they were sick, and they would go to their home. That was the place. I doubt they had an office that they went to, and, uh, and that was it. So what happens if you got sick? Well, if you are a lady and you got sick and you were married, your husband took care of you, or if your kids were old enough, they took care of you, or if you had parents still alive, they took care of you until you got well, or you didn't. And that was the structure. You remember that when Jesus' day, when uh, there was a... Uh, a a poor uh, man who couldn't walk and a lame man and he caused his own problems and all. He had four friends that brought him to, to Peter's house in order to be able to, to, uh, to, to try to get help from Jesus. That's, that was the medical system in those days. Now what would happen if you're a widow and you got sick? Who's going to take care of you? Who in the church is going to take care of you? The deacon? Really? Would you want a deacon coming and taking care of you when you're sick? I'll let you do the math on all of that. And so it's very clear that what began to happen in this early Christian church was that the needs of the people began to uh, be addressed by the church and the deacons seeing these needs had wives and the wives would go and help to meet those needs and they became the nurses of those days. They began to care for the people in the church who were sick, and they also ministered to the needy who might need food and, uh, and clothing and other kinds of things. And this began the evolution of the work of deacons and deaconesses that we, even today, have a certain amount of recognition for, but not to the capacity that God really intended it to be. This is how the deacon S's developed more or less. Now, in a couple, two or three chapters that he has, he talks a little bit about how when they go to gravestones, and you know there's a lot of history on gravestones. You ever walk through a cemetery and start reading a little bit of the history there? Uh, it's like reading a newspaper from back in 1800s or whatever. You see what was happening with that particular uh, individual, and it may be very brief, but it might be as brief as uh, saying... Um, Deaconess Phoebe. And boy, wait a minute. Really? That's what she did. 
and uh, archaeologists and people thrive on things like that because there's a clue to what was going on. And the author brings that out here in, in, uh, in this. So I've just summarized that for you. It's in your book. You can read that. And there's more detail to that. I want to move on to deacons and deaconesses in early Adventism. If we move now from the early church, the first century church, we jump centuries over to the early Adventist church, and we begin to find a little bit of how this worked. We'll come back and fill the gaps here in just a, a little bit. The word deacon appears in, and by the way, I don't know what chapter this is. This is about chapter 4. Okay. In chapter 4, the word deacon is uh, referred to, and the author points out that Ellen White spoke, used the word deacon a whopping 15 times in all her writings. Isn't that amazing? And uh, in those, out of those 15 times, only four refer, relate to their ministry. So it was more in a historical context most of the time and using it that way, but seldom in, uh, in a way that describes the ministry and, and really gives us an idea in the early Adventist church what deacons were doing. Okay? Now, she may use that term in relationship to, to the Bible term and, and all of that, but not so much in terms of what they did. Deaconess, similarly, 18 times and only three times relating to their ministry. So we're going to identify three areas, two on the screen at the moment, and those areas are... The first area of reference is that the deacons in the early Adventist church were encouraged to be careful with the wine and how they used it and how they saved it and, and et cetera uh, in relationship to the communion services. Early 1800s, middle, middle 1800s, early Adventist church developing, they have communion services and the deacons need to be concerned about the wine. Why? Pardon me? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, well, that's actually a very good uh, statement, but that's not so much it. But I like that because that's, uh, that's related here. Maybe they did need some of that. Uh, deaconesses as well might have been involved in that. But what was going on? Think about this. What do you think the issue might have been in relationship to the wine? Could they go down to Myers and pick it up? No. Okay. Could they open the refrigerator and pull it out? How did they preserve the grape juice? How long does it take grape juice to ferment? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you can just imagine that they might have been having a problem in the early Adventist church where the grape juice had been sitting around a little bit too long. And you can imagine that the symbol that represents the blood of Jesus, you don't want that fermented. I mean, it destroys the symbology, and there are other potential problems along the way as well. And so Ellen White is pointing out that the deacons need to take care of this problem. <laughs> so that's one of the areas that were addressed here, and I found that fascinating. He addresses it, and, and he talks about it. The second area is in the responsibility of handling the tithe. All right, remember, we're in the middle 1800s. There were banks in those days, but uh, certainly not the financial system that we have today. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, but uh, specifically, the deacons in Battle Creek were being uh, charged with the responsibility of collecting the tithe. And how did that go about? Now, you're saying, okay, they took up the offering on Sabbath morning. Okay, maybe. 
But remember, we're living in the middle 1800s. Not everybody got to church. Many did. But the members were often scattered all around. Now, how does the church function if the tithe is not collected on a regular basis? Because the purpose of the tithe is the support of the ministry, the support of the work of God, keeping that advanced. But what if the person that uh, the, the members are not able to get to church on a regular basis, then the money doesn't come in on a regular basis. And Ellen White said that the deacon's responsibility was to go out there and collect it. And so that's what they were doing. They'd get on their horse and they'd go from house to house and wherever that might be, and they'd collect the tithe. Now they didn't come up to the person and say, turn in your tithe. Now the people wanted to turn in their tithe, they just hadn't gotten to church, and so they were providing a service by going out and doing that. And as I was uh, rereading this uh, last night, I was reminded with the, the fact that uh, this became quite a full-time task for some of the, the deacons to be able to do that. And here you're dealing with volunteers. But again, these are some of the early references to the work of deacons and deaconesses in the local church. Obviously, communion is all there. Taking up the offering is there. Well, you have no real surprises there, but in a different context than our own time. And obviously, that establishes the foundation for the development of these responsibilities in our church today. The third area is pertained to the ordination of deacons, and uh, there's some evidence even of the ordination of deaconesses. And as you look at this whole subject in this book, um, the, uh, there is reference to the fact that the deacons were ordained, that is a good thing, and also in reference to the ordination of deaconess, deaconesses um, taking place there. The uh, author makes reference to a, an experience in Australia where there were a number of individuals that were ordained, some as elders and some as deacons, and even mentions a couple, two or three deaconesses that were ordained as part of this by uh, Willie White, uh, Ellen White's son, and you have that reference. Now, there's two points that I want to make in regard to this. I'm not spending a lot of time on this because, again, it's not the thrust of where we're going. First of all, the author in talking about this is really doing so from a historical perspective as well as suggesting that there may be some value in our time for this. But he's not discussing at all. He even makes this point in the book. He says, I'm not talking about the ordination of women to gospel ministry. This has nothing to do with that discussion. And he says, I'm not trying to influence that. And it was written before General Conference 2015 and all of that. And he said, it's not part of that discussion. Not at all. He wasn't trying to establish that. That's the first point I want to make. The second point that I want to make, and actually three, the second point I want to make is that the church has recognized this at times early on. Big gap of time when that was not a practice in the, in the Adventist church, even in the later part of the early Adventist history, and then more broadly through time. But more recently, within the last relatively few years, last couple of church manuals, you see again that women may, deaconesses may be ordained. It's in the church manual, it is there, and it does take place in certain places. Now, the author of the book seeks to make a point of this in relationship to this is part of the reason that uh, the role of deacons and deaconesses has been diminished because they're not recognized as being the spiritual roles that they need to be. 
I would add a third piece to all of this and say this is a challenging area for the church today because of its interrelationship with the whole discussion of women as uh, as uh, ordained ministers in the, of the gospel in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the theology in relationship to that, the hermeneutics and the scriptures. And it's still an area that is developing and growing. But I'm going to summarize it by saying this. Right now, the church manual allows for it. If your church wants to do that, they have the authority to do so. They don't have to get permission from us to do it or anything like that. It's there. The real issue to me is that we need to, whether ordained or not, the church needs to be re-educated about the important role of deacons and deaconesses in the church. Deacons are being ordained and they're getting treated just the same way. So ordination is not the magic bullet that solves this problem. It is us recognizing that the work of a deacon or deaconess is a spiritual work that needs to be recognized as being a spiritual work and that it needs to no longer just be, all I have to do is take up the offering and that's all I do. So I'm going to try to illustrate that today in the last few minutes that we have, and this will spill over into tomorrow's presentation where we'll go into it even more in detail, and that is what is the ministry of the deacons and deaconesses that, uh, that God wants us to do. Now, he has some sections here. I told you I would make reference to this. And again, there's nothing on the screen because I don't want to spend any time here on it. You can look it up in your book and you can see all the references he has to how things develop over a period of time in other denominations and how they viewed the work of deacons and deaconesses and how it, uh, it came to fruition that, in that point. That uh, we started with the first century. We jumped to our own time as an Adventist church. And in between, there's some interesting factors of how these things progressed over time. That included the deacons and deaconesses being teachers of the Word of God. This was not just in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries or whatever, but it was also in the 1st century, wasn't it? What was Stephen doing when he was stoned? Was he taking the food to the, de uh, to the widows? No, he was preaching, wasn't he? He was out preaching the Word. What was Philip doing? He was out preaching the word. One day he got transported by the Spirit of God from where he was out to the Ethiopian and was able to preach the gospel message there. The deacons and deaconesses were also the teachers of the word of God. Our deacons today and our deaconesses, did anybody ever tell you that that was part of your role in the church, that you are a spiritual leader in the church and part of your responsibility as a disciple of Jesus who is... A disciple is one who's sharing the gospel with others, right? That part of that is not only teaching others, but doing it yourself. Or I should say, not only doing it, but also teaching others in the church how to do that. That's the work of deacons and deaconesses in the church as spiritual leaders. You should be involved in soul winning as a deacon or a deaconess yourself. Because you see, Ellen White says that all our churches should be training schools for Christian workers. And who are the teachers in, the, in a school but those that are the leaders, right? You expect the teacher and the principal of a school to have some training and experience in actually knowing how to teach and knowing the subject matter that they're teaching. Well, if you are the leaders of a training center 
a training school in your church, which your church is, then who are the teachers? It's not just the pastor. It is those that are disciples. Those are the ones who are the leaders of the church. And the deacons and deaconesses and the elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. They are disciples themselves with Jesus. So they're sharing their faith with other people. And when church members need to know how to do that, they are sharing with them how they do it. And they are teaching them. That is a training school for Christian workers that Jesus wants our churches to be. Wow, you just went from taking up the offering and preparing the communion bread to being a real deacon or deaconess. Our churches have to be able to survive without the pastor. And who is going to do that work but the deacons, the deaconesses, the elders, the people of the church have to do the work. Now I can sit down. <laughs> She's preaching the truth. You're going to do it too. That's exactly it. And that's the point of this is that there's a point that, that he makes in the book earlier on, and I think it's in the, in the um, second chapter when we were talking about Acts chapter 6, and I didn't bring that point out, and I really, this is a good moment to bring it out. He points out that what happened in the early Christian church, uh, and, and the Bible brings this out, because you can see what began to happen, is that the church was multiplying, ran into this problem, but after the deacons and deaconesses began to fulfill their role in the church, that the church exploded. And I don't mean blew up. I mean the growth of the church exploded and moved ahead because the leaders of the church, the pastors, were able to do the work that they were supposed to do. And because of that, the work advanced mightily. And while they're doing that work, the deacons and deaconesses were not just feeding the widows, but they were also supporting the structure of the church and the nurture of the members as well. The the elders and the deacons and the deaconesses were providing that structure so that the preachers could go and preach the word to the rest of the world. And the church was growing because of that. And they weren't just waiting until the, pre the, the preachers were in jail, which will happen here, and which is what she's making reference to uh, in our own situation here. But the fact of the matter is the church under that structure was growing rapidly. And that's what will make the devil mad. Now, there were some other things that were going on as well. We'll come back to these tomorrow, but I'm setting that stage today. First of all, they were, uh, second of all, they were caregivers of the, the sick and the needy. I've explained the reason for that already and the, the framework for that. That's how that all began to develop, and that's what developed there. Now, this is one that is often forgotten. But the truth of the matter is, this is the way the whole position of deacons and deaconesses developed. It developed out of what? Out of conflict. Was it a conflict that brought the need for deacons? Yeah, they were not getting along with each other. There was a problem. There was a, they were getting angry at each other because of the problem. They needed somebody to come along and solve that problem. They needed somebody to manage that conflict. Conflict in the church today, pick up the phone and call the pastor. Call the pastor. Call the pastor. We're in trouble. Somebody's mad at somebody. Call the pastor. That's not biblical. <laughs> and it's not productive 
because every time there's a problem in the church, the pastor gets called and he's now taken into the responsibility of trying to solve that problem instead of winning souls like God has called him to do. Ellen White makes it abundantly clear this is not the work of the pastor. And she even puts it this way. She says, no sooner is that one problem solved than another arises and this is not God's way of doing this work. So in order to solve that, we have to solve this one, and that is the strengthening of the work of deacons and deaconesses so that we begin to meet those needs. The work of conflict managers is, is a critical work. Um, I'm dealing with this tomorrow in my class on redemptive discipline, specifically because this is an area that needs some focus. Now, I've, tre I've, I've done... Uh, classes here for deacons and deaconesses in the past where I took a little more time than just one or two days. And I talked a little bit more about this area and provide some tools there. But I will give you one here in case this is the only chance we... We'll talk about it more tomorrow, but just uh, one tool to, to reference. is a book by an individual by the name of Ken Sand. And it's Sand with an E on the end. S-A-N-D-E. Kenneth Sand. And he wrote a book called The Peacemaker. And it is an excellent book. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's a Christian lawyer. And he has uh, uh, so just some wonderful practical tools for managing conflict and uh, set in the context of Christian churches and Christian situations and is a very helpful tool. I recommend it to pastors because pastors do get involved in these kinds of issues, but I also recommend it to elders, deacons, and deaconesses, and uh, those who are in the class on uh, redemptive discipline, I will have a handout specifically related to that and a tool related to that. And if, I, if there's enough demand in this class, I might provide that tool as well. No, it's not, sorry. It's available, um, I know that uh, local Christian bookstores carry it. So if it's not an Adventist bookstore, it, but uh, you know, Zondervan just went out of business. So um, the, the bookstores, their stores are no longer available. Family bookstores is what they were called. Um, they've all shuttered, and unless there happens to be one open near you. But there are the Christian Bible, uh, book and Bible stores around. And, and you can order them online, Amazon, of course. That's why they're out of business, because Amazon is where everybody gets everything today, right? And that's where they happen. So conflict managers, that's part of uh, the work here. Business managers, this makes some sense because deacons generally think of their work as, as uh, taking care of the building and some of those kinds of issues. Business managers, we'll talk a little bit more about that later as we get into this. And uh, I think I'll stop there. It's a great place to end. And tomorrow we'll get into the specific details of the work of deacons and deaconesses and how to carry those out and give you a chance to ask some questions about that as well. But now we've set the spiritual foundation, given you an idea of what the deacons and deaconesses have been doing over the, from the first century through the centuries into the time of the Adventist church. And now we want to apply it to your local church, and that's what we're going to do tomorrow. So thank you very much for being here today. We're going to have a closing prayer, and uh, we'll dismiss you. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, Jesus, who modeled for us being a servant. Lord, we are called to also be servants for you. 
And specifically as deacons and deaconesses, elders, leaders in the church, we have a spiritual calling, not just a task to take care of a building, to prepare communion bread, or to fill the baptistry and help men and women be baptized, all of these good tasks. But we're called especially to be spiritual leaders. And I pray that you will guide us as we seek to understand that work better and apply it to our own lives and our own ministries and our own churches. As we go from this place now, go with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.